Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, that wasn't very strong. Uh, good morning. We're glad you're here today. And uh, this morning, we are beginning a brand new uh, series. It's our summer series. And we're going to be looking at the book of James. And James is in the New Testament, the second half uh, of the Bible. And each time that uh, we come to study a particular book of the Bible, one of the things that I think is most important is that we understand the context, what is around it um, that we need to understand, more than just simply uh, the words. So what we want to look at today is some questions like this. Uh, who wrote it? Uh, when was it written? What is kind of the major theme of this book of the Bible? And there's just five chapters. And who is the audience that James is writing to? In other words, it's really, really important that you understand both the background and the history of a book than just simply reading the words. Like, what is going on? Who wrote this? What was going on when it was taking place? Now, I realize that in saying this, it's kind of like high school history class. No one likes high school history class. It's boring, you know. You learn to enjoy history when you get the history channel later on. But we're only going to do a little bit of history uh, this morning, but I think that it will help us um, kind of create a framework for where we're going, and there'll be a big payoff um, by the end of our time together. So a little pain now for a lot more gain later on, okay? So here's the first question that we want to ask, and it is, who wrote the book of James? Now, you're smart people, even though you're tired people. But if there is a book called James, who do you think wrote it? Wow! I mean, I am amazed at your biblical knowledge this morning. You're right. It was James. Now the question becomes, who was James? Well, James was the half-brother of Jesus. Did you realize that Jesus had multiple brothers and sisters? There are passages in the Gospels that tell us uh, who they were and what they were about. So Jesus wasn't an only son, an only child. He had other people in his life, and James was one of them. And his nickname was James the Just, because he was a person who was filled with integrity and honesty, and he would shoot it straight. He was a great person of character. And he was the key leader of the church in Jerusalem. So when the church first began, after Jesus died, one of the key leaders was his half-brother, James. Now, we know little or nothing about the relationship between Jesus and James. Scripture doesn't tell us that. There are a couple of passages that you'll see in your outline uh, that will refer to him as Jesus' brother, but there's nothing that's told about their relationship. But in verse 1 of James, we actually learn uh, this particular thing that he thought of his brother. It says this, James, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have an older sister, Lisa, and I have an older brother, Tim. I have never in my life called them Lord. And I was just wondering, just by a a show of hands this morning, how many of you have ever called your sibling, your brother or your sister, Lord? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. None of us would call them Lord. Now, there are other names that we have for them, right? But we may not use those today, and maybe James did too, I don't know. But James humbles himself enough to know that his brother is not like any other man who's ever walked the face of the earth, but that he really is the Son of God. And so he has no problem saying, James, the brother of Jesus, I'm his servant, he is my Lord. James then goes on to be one of the key leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. He writes this incredible book that we're going to dig into deep this summer. And his writing was kind of like a collection of sermon notes. Kind of like if you took the teaching notes for the whole year and you just pulled out one or two thoughts and you put it all into a book. That's what James kind of became. There was not really any topic. There was no connecting of dot to dots. I think he was possibly the first guy who had ADD, you know, in the Bible. And he had ADD in the first century AD. What do you think about that? That's pretty good. And it's almost as though he just wants to communicate so much that he starts on a train of thought and then he remembers something that Jesus said Or he remembers something that was really important. He goes, oh, and one more thing. Let me tell you this. And oh, oh, I forgot, but I want to tell you this. And oh, before I can go on, before I end this book, let me tell you this. Now, most of the time, when we take the Bible and we read a particular book of it, what's kind of nice is to take an outline, to outline it, to organize it, to kind of make it make sense, to have the dots connecting one to another. Most of the time when we read this, we see something red and then we go, oh, okay, it's connected to this. Well, this is not the case in James. That's not the spirit of the book as you dig into it. It's more like wisdom literature. Proverbs. There's a book called Proverbs in the Old Testament. And it's an entire book of just wise sayings. And James would have understood that. And a lot of his book is just doing that. Giving wise things that you go, oh, yeah. That makes sense. However, there is one overarching theme that is throughout the book and that I think James wants to accomplish, and it's this. James wants his readers to become fully mature Christians. He doesn't want them to stay where they're at. He wants them to grow, to become fully mature Christians. He wants them to reach their full potential, that as much as they can, that they would grow closer and closer to God. That regardless of where they're at on the spiritual spectrum, he wants them to grow closer. And all of the challenges are simply about growing people up to another level. 
Now, most scholars believe that James was written around 47 to 49 A.D. So after Jesus' death, 47 to 49 A.D., James writes this. And then shortly after that, there's this big meeting of all of the church folks uh, throughout the world called the Jerusalem Council. And they decide some things, and James is a big leader there. And then just 13 years after that, though, they take James to the temple, the Jewish leaders of the time, take him to the temple. They take him to the pinnacle of the temple, and they throw him off the temple to be martyred and die. He falls, stories and stories, to his death. There's only one problem. When they come and look at him, he's not dead. And Christian theologians tell us that they picked up stones and they stoned him to death. And while he's being stoned, church fathers tell us that he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Who else said something like that? His brother, right? When Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And his brother says the same thing. Now, one last important thing before we kind of dig into our text, and that is, who is the audience? Who is James writing to? Well, James wrote to Jewish believers who were being persecuted for their belief in Christ. So he's writing, not just to people in Jerusalem, but throughout the world who have scattered because they're being persecuted. And He writes to them to give them encouragement and wisdom. And you can understand, right, that if you were a Jewish leader and there's this group of people that are taking your Jewish followers away from you and they're becoming Christians, that you might want to get rid of them because it doesn't bode so well for you. Now, The people that he writes to are extremely, extremely poor. They're deprived. Christians at this time were the smallest religious population. So people ignored them. They walked away. So when you see passages in this book, what I want you to remember is that he's writing to people who are in extreme poverty, just barely making it. Well, this gives us some background, and you can gain some more background if you want. Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to start a class called Digging Deeper in James. It'll be at 9.30, and we'll be teaching this class. We'll dig deeper. Now, in your program today, um, I believe it was in there, you should have received a uh, little outline. Is that correct? Okay. So uh, you can take that, and you can use that. Uh, throughout this week. It should say James, uh, fuel on the front. And uh, does everybody have that? Good. Um, So the fuel, just like you need fuel in your body to make your body move, and fuel in your gas tank to make your car move, if you want fuel in your spiritual life, these two tools will help you so that you move, that you grow closer to God. Okay, there's a couple tools uh, each day of the week that you can uh, kind of be encouraged by. So let's go ahead now and let's read out loud together uh, this passage of Scripture, starting in verse 2. 
So we'll read it out loud uh, together. So let's read it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, we're going to throw back up verse 2 here for a second. And I don't know about you, but when I read this verse, it's confusing to me. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't know about you, but when I'm facing a trial in my life, I don't go, Woo! wonder where the joy is here. Could I have some more trials so I could have more joy? You know, I don't walk through life like that. So what in the world is he saying when he says consider it pure joy? And the reason why I think many of us never, ever, ever find joy in our trials is because we are so consumed with a passion for comfort. We have lazy boys. We have lazy Susans. We have the lazy days of summer. Did you know that today they even have lazy cars? I was reading this week about an auto show in Chicago. And all of the big time car manufacturers bring their best cars. In fact, you know what? They don't even call them cars. This is what the article said. They are living rooms on wheels. Living rooms on wheels. Now, what can you get? What are some of the options? Well, one option is a beverage holder that has temperature control so that you can make your drink as cold as you want it or as hot as you want it. They have chairs... In the driver's side, passenger side, in the back seat, that are massage chairs. You know, like the ones that you pay five bucks at the mall, you put it in there and it does nothing for you? These are not like those. These are like the good massage chairs, and it, like, you can get all kinds of lumbar support and, you know, the whole deal in your car. There was one feature that was a refrigerator in the back seat. You actually lift the seat up and there's a refrigerator there. Not that your beverage thing that you just bought couldn't keep it cold. You know, you've got to have a refrigerator in the back seat. And one marketer put it this way. It's all about conveniences and adapting vehicles to whatever the consumer says he or she wants. 
The only things missing from today's car are running water and a bathroom. But wait, it won't be long until you'll have the ability to have tap water in your car. Think about that. You're driving along, your kids are messing around, you're like, hey mom, I got something, you know, on my face. Just pour it out, throw it back at them. They're clean. Now, there was one option that I have to confess, I thought it was pretty cool because my wife really could use this option. Parallel parking. You actually pull the car up, you push a button, you take your hands off the wheel, you take a deep breath, and it will parallel park it perfectly. And just think, if you get in a wreck or you bump something, you don't have to worry about it. You sue the car manufacturer, you know? I'm sure attorneys are already thinking about this. But parallel parking. Now, folks, just think about that. All the comfort that is coming our way, if you want it. It's amazing. The reality is, every single one of us are creatures of comfort. We are desperately seeking comfort in our lives. So no wonder when James says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, we just don't get that. Now, this word, trials, what does that really mean? Well, in Greek, in the language that the Bible was written, there are kind of two definitions. The first one is this, enticement to sin, and the other is external afflictions, particularly persecution. And the second one is the one, the way that James writes. So when he's talking about trials here, he's talking about persecution. And that makes sense, right? Because he's writing to all of these Christians who are being persecuted. Now, trials can take on many different forms in our lives. Some of them are common to all of us. Probably every single person here has gone through the trial of losing a loved one or a financial trial or an illness that was a trial or depression or anxiety, trials like that. And there are some adversities that are unique to Christians and might include some of the persecution of your faith, that because of your faith you get persecuted. Now, verses 3 and 4 and the rest of uh, James chapter 1 gives us an ability of understanding why. Why should we be joyful in the midst of our trials? Why, why should we have joy in our trials? Well, the first reason is trials help us to grow and mature in our faith. Trials help us to grow and to mature in our faith. James says, without trials, you simply can't grow into maturity. James says, without testing, there's no perseverance, which ultimately leads to maturity. Now, there's a parallel passage in 1 Peter. Now, Peter was a part of the Jerusalem church, too. He was one of the early disciples. And this is what he says. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, through James and through Peter, we come with a second reason of why we can have joy even in the midst of our trials. And it's this. Trials help us to strengthen our faith. So they help us to grow and mature. And secondly, they help us to have our strength, or our faith strengthened. So when you and I suffer and we're tested in the fires of adversity, we gain strength. Now, this is a concept that I bet you've heard it before. Maybe it was on the, you know, high school athletic field or, you know, high school drama or, you know, a little pain for gain and all that kind of stuff. Most of the time you're like, I know that, but I don't like it. I don't like it very much. But James tells us that if we learn to be steadfast and we respond in strength and endurance, that our faith will grow stronger. But we can't develop uh, the kind of staying power if we always want life to be comfortable. Because if we stay there, you'll just become flabby Christians, and you'll never grow. One of my favorite authors is Henry Cloud, and he wrote a book called Integrity. And in it, uh, he says this, Fixing a marriage, a company, one's own performance, an addiction or a depression, a failure, a relationship, even a physical injury are all possible and done successfully every day by people of character. But these people have oriented themselves to a basic reality that there is no pain without, what's it say? Without gain. No pain, no gain. In the end, the shortcut is always the longest route. And people of character know this, and it has become part of their makeup. It is the way they think and the way that they are. Now, before we continue, what I'd like you to do is to take a moment, and I want you to identify a time in your life as a Christ follower in which you were persecuted in which you faced a specific trial, something that happened. Now, for some of you, that comes very easy, because you're in a trial right now. Nobody else knows it, but you know it, and you're going through something right now. You can cover it up, but you know that you're in a trial right now. You can name it, no problem at all. You ask me what the trial is, I can tell you. But others of you may have to look back a little bit to think about when was that time in the period of my life in which I had some adversity. And then I want you to ask the question, did I grow from it? Did the trial that I had to experience, did I actually grow from it? I mean, are you stronger today because the trial you experienced Are you a little bit more like Jesus today because you endured in a trial? One of the biggest kind of spiritual trials that I went through took place 15 years ago. I had just been pastoring a small church 
that had doubled in size in five years. Everyone in the community kind of saw me as, you know, the, the young whippersnapper that was doing these amazing things. We were going to go ahead and we were going to build a new church building. And in the midst of all this, I started praying and asking God what direction he wanted for my life. And I felt like he was prompting me and saying, I want you to follow your wife as she finishes her residency to be a doctor. And I want you to go to school. Now, this was not what I wanted to hear, but we did it anyways. And in 1998, we moved here to Muncie. Now, Jen started her schooling here at Ball Memorial Hospital in their family medicine residency. And she knew people and she was connected and and all that kind of stuff because of the other doctors. When I moved here, folks, I knew absolutely no one in Muncie. The only thing I knew about Muncie were a few Ball State parties in college that I had gone to. That was the only thing that I knew. And I figured those friends were long gone by now, you know what I mean? So I really didn't have anyone that I knew or connected with. And so for that entire summer of 1998, I spent mowing my yard, weeding the flower bed, planting things. I decided I was going to have the best-looking yard in our entire neighborhood. I was like J. Crew before there was J. Crew, you know. And we did. We accomplished it. Uh, had the best-looking yard. But it was a really lonely time because you can only mow and weed and do stuff that so long. And the only human contact I had for about three months was Jennifer or things that we would do uh, with the medical residency. I really knew no one. Then my master's started uh, at Anderson University, and I thought, oh, well, I'll go there, and this is all these people that are Christians, and they'll be kind, and they were not. They just weren't. And maybe part of it was me, but part of it was them too, and I just felt so disconnected. And if any of you have ever had to go back to school or do some training after you've been gone for a while, how difficult that is. And it had been five years since I had done anything. And all of a sudden, my anxiety and depression really started kicking in. I became really lonely. And my days would be going to school and coming back, dealing with anxiety, depression, and dry heaves over a toilet. For 36 days in a row... Every single day, I would wake up for about 10 to 15 minutes and dry heaving over a toilet because of the anxiety. This went on for 36 days. Loneliness, dry heaves, anxiety, depression. Loneliness, dry heaves, anxiety, depression. I didn't pray. I didn't read my Bible. I didn't want to do, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. I started going to counseling twice a week because my wife's and our marriage was really kind of struggling. She goes, yeah, you need some help. They put me on antidepressants and as a man, I was like, no, I'm not going to take these. And then after about day 36, I was like, I'll take anything. You know? I was ready to quit seminary. I didn't want to be a pastor. wanted to go and do something else. I was in a spiritual trial. There was a trial on my life. I call it my desert time. And I thought all of this was God's fault. 
Now, I'm not going to go into the rest of the story simply to say this. Obviously, I didn't quit being a pastor. Some of you might have wished I had, but I didn't. I graduated from seminary, and God graciously loved me into a relationship with Him. But this is the thing about that trial, is that I learned some valuable lessons that I would have never received if I hadn't gone through it. First of all, this. God reminded me that even when I'm going through a trial, that He is with me. That God doesn't take days off. He doesn't walk away. If I mess up, if I screw up, if I flub up, He doesn't walk away. He draws closer. And He reminded me of that. I was looking this week at a journal. I journaled during this entire time. Uh, And uh, this is what I wrote on day 36. I have not prayed in 36 days. But this prayer today is not simply words, but it is life. Father, thank you for being with me in the desert. Thank you for not walking away. You are my only shelter in the desert, and I worship you and you alone. I thank you for taking me through the desert so that I would know you even more intimately. Because in the desert experience I am going through, you are the only thing that I can cling to that knows me, heart, soul, and mind. So he showed me that he's always with me in my intimacy with God. I I understood that in a totally different way. The second thing he did was he created... a greater humble heart in my life. You see what happens when you're in your 20s and your church doubles in size and there are all these big churches, 500, 600 people calling you and saying, hey, we'd like you to come and teach. All of a sudden, you get the big head. And all of a sudden, I got this big head thinking, it's all about me. I'm at the center of all of this. And God humbled me and reminded me, you're not at the center, I'm at the center. I'm at the top spot, you're not. He also humbled me to be more compassionate for people who are going through some difficult things. People who struggle with depression or anxiety or when they're going through a trial or a hurt or a habit or a hang-up, I can understand, I can relate. I felt alone. I know what it's like not to have people around. I know that experience. But I highly doubt that I'd ever be able to connect with people, and I honestly doubt that the jar would have ever come about if I had not gone through a period of my time, of my life, in which I finally was so disconnected that I only had God to turn to. And He humbled me so that I can be humble with other people. Now, I realize that me and that, just as I shared that, some of you are like, wow, that's minor, you know. You don't understand what trial I'm going through right now. But this is what I want us to understand this morning. The point is not that we compare the pain or the hurt or the trials in our lives, but to look at every single thing we go through through the perspective of growth. Can you see where you become more like Jesus in some way because you have endured a trial? And our perspective has to be grounded in the fact that we believe in a God who is good. James 1.5 is kind of our memory verse for this week. I'd encourage you to memorize it. And uh, 
the verse goes like this. It'll come up on the side screens. We're going to do this all together after I do it once. But when you're memorizing a verse, you want to give the verse the, the place where it's at, and then the verse, and then name the place again. So we're going to do this in just uh, one second, but this way we're going to do it. James 1.5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. James 1.5. You guys think you can do that? You already know who wrote the book. You got James, right? I mean, let's go two for two, you know? Okay, let's read this together. James 1.5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. James 1.5. So this week, I would encourage you to do that, to memorize that. Now, what this scripture basically tells us is that God has a single-minded focus when it comes to his giving. He is unwavering. He wants to give you wisdom. He says, all you got to do is ask and I'll give you wisdom. God isn't holding back today because he gave you something yesterday. Now, human beings do that all the time, don't they? They're like, oh, I was nice to him on Wednesday at work. Okay, there's my quota, you know. God's not like that. Or someone gives something, you're like, I remember, I gave that person money, they never paid me back. I'm not going to give them another dime. God's not like that. God doesn't remember what He gave you yesterday. He's a God of amnesia. He, he gives you goodness. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you love. And if the next day comes back and you've totally messed up and turned your back on Him, He says, I'll give again. I'll give you more wisdom. I'll give you more love. I'll give you more forgiveness. Just come to Me. He's not sitting there keeping track. He, his generosity is abundant every day. Now, how essential do you think it is for you and me when we're going through adversity in our life, when we're going through a trial, that we're rooted in the picture of what God really looks like? That God is for us, that He's a loving Father who's always present. I think it's absolutely critical because what happens is we become very doubtful when our picture of God changes, even though God hasn't changed. Take a look at verse 17. We're reminded this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The God of the Bible is unchanging, and He is the source of everything that is good. How aware are you that you serve a God who is fundamentally forever, always, until eternity. He's always good. And a part of His goodness, though, is that every once in a while, He knows us better than we know ourselves, so He gives us discipline that we might grow up. He gives us wisdom over time through our trials. We may not understand it completely. We may not understand it when we're going through the trial. But over time, he gives us perspective. He gives us wisdom. In their book, How People Grow, Henry Cloud and John Townsend uh, tell a story of a young mom who came to them named Kara. And Kara has an issue. Her issue is, is that she is extremely unorganized in her life. She said she was bad with money. She's late for everything that she's ever done. Her house was a complete mess. 
No task ever checked off of her endless to-do list. Kara at one time said she was uh, tested for ADD, but it was negative. And she said, I completely and often have resolutions, and I pray to God, and I make commitments, but nothing changes. Nothing ever lasts very long. So Dr. Townsend is in this uh, counseling session with her, and he asks her, if you told your toddler to try really hard to make dinner, what would happen? And Carol looked really, really confused, and she said, well, he'd fail. And he says, right, but why would he fail? And she said, well, because he doesn't have the ability. So how does he get the ability, he asked. I suppose he has to work for a long period of time. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, the lights came on in her head and she's like, are you saying that's what I have to do? And he said, in a way. He said, I believe that you don't have the ability yet to be self-disciplined. It's inside of you. So when self-discipline is found wanting, we need other disciplines from outside of us so that we can use it and develop it. Now, what you don't learn uh, in that area, but that you learn in the book, is that Kara was raised by parents who did everything for her. She never learned how to handle money. She never learned how to schedule her life. She never learned how to clean a room. Her parents did not teach her any disciplines. So Kara, with the help of Dr. Townsend, got some accountability in her life with her husband and some other friends, and she began a deliberate kind of direction towards self-discipline. And it took some time. But it eventually started producing healthy results in her life and in her home. Any parent in this room, regardless of how old your children are, you know that a part of loving your kids is that you have to discipline them. You know, the best parents that I see are not just parents that love their kids, but parents who understand giving limits to their kids. You have to have love and limits. And frankly, my wife Jennifer and I, we struggle sometimes with the limit side. Because the limit side is not the fun side. It's not the easy side. It's not the side where you have to... Uh, you know, say yes to everything. It's where you give limits and you say no. And yet, we, even we as fallen human beings realize that if you want to build character in your life, you can't do it without expectations, without limits, without training. You have to have limits. You have to have discipline to grow. Now, some of you might be familiar with this passage in Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews is in the New Testament. And it says this, Endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? Our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant 
at the time, of course, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now again, let's just be real, real honest here for a second. None of us like to go through trials. And our response, usually in a trial, is not joy. Many of us first go to denial. We say, how can this be happening? This shouldn't be happening to me. Or maybe a trial comes and we choose to blame God or we blame other people. That's what I did. Others of us choose escape. And escape just isn't, you know, drugs and alcohol. But escape can be television. It can be sleep. It can be boredom. Escape can be Facebook or the Internet. But none of those responses serve us well because we don't practice the discipline of steadfast endurance. We also tend to question God and His fundamental character. Sometimes we often look at God and we think He's a dictator or He's this mean, kind of abusive Father who delights in inflicting haphazardly kind of punishment on us. But this thinking is way off track. And if you've ever had that thinking of God, you're wrong. Because God's not like that. He is loving and caring and kind and compassion. He is not a dictator. Look at these words from Lamentations 3.33. Let's read this out loud together. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Now it's absolutely true that Sometimes we don't understand the trials that we go through. And there's some suffering in this life in which people make evil choices and it affects us. And sometimes Satan himself allows evil to come. He's constantly about creating that havoc in our lives. And yet we can still grow in the midst of our suffering. Because those things are not God's original plan. And then there are some trials, right, that happen in life that you just can't explain. A stillborn death. A death of a child. A young teenage girl that gets diagnosed with cancer just as they're going off to college. Folks, there are some trials and some suffering that happen in this life in which I simply have to say, I don't know why. And when people try to... to, Figure it all out. It doesn't make sense. i found that it's not very productive to try to figure out why someone's going through some kind of adversity. I mean, the reality is we can ask questions until the cows come home, but a lot of times they're just not going to be answered. Now, in heaven, maybe once we get to heaven, we won't want to ask any questions, but I've got questions to ask God, and I'm sure He has answers to give to me. But while we're here on earth, our primary job is to keep running the race and to choose to turn to God's goodness. And this leads us kind of to our final joyful experience that we can have even in the midst of trials. And it's this. Trials help us to have greater dependence on God. Trials help us to have greater dependence on God. You see, folks, even when things are dark, even when things are confusing, even when it seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, we can still depend on God. Even in the midst of our suffering, 
we still can choose to believe that the trials that come our way do not define us and we can become more dependent upon Him. Trials can turn us to our Savior. Now here's like the key verse to adversity or trials in the Bible. It's in Romans 8.28. And it says this, And we know that in all things, in great things and horrific news, everything that's in between, good news, horrific news, everything in between, and we know that, all, that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, the Scripture doesn't say that God causes all things. There is an evil one who is here to still kill and destroy. Satan longs to create havoc in our life. The Scripture doesn't say either that God is going to work out every tragedy for our comfort. God doesn't say everything is going to be worked out for your pleasure or your net worth. But God works out everything for good, which often means that our faith grows further. You become more sensitive to the needs of others. You become more about what life is about, and you understand it more. That deep work that happened. What this verse does say, and what James says, is that there is an all-powerful God watching over six billion people in our world every single day and a whole bunch of planets, and that God will engage Himself into your life if you will open your heart to Him. And He will be with you no matter the circumstance. God promises, I'll never let you go. Nothing's out of His reach. He transforms us when we turn to Him in the midst of our trial. Well, how do we do this? Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Folks, when we trust in God with all that we are, He promises to make our paths straight and to bring good even out of the hurt, pain, trial, evil that comes our way. But his promise doesn't just end with this life. His promise goes beyond this life. James 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed are those who persevere under trial, because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This crown that they're talking about often by biblical scholars is talked about as a lover's crown. That if we don't have the love of God in our hearts, That the trials will come and they'll make us bitter and we'll become critical and we'll become resentful and we'll lose our crown. Not every believer will get that. Only those who are faithful to death. Folks, you and I have been challenged with this like long-term view with an eye on an eternal prize and it's so hard in our society and our culture to understand that because all of us want something right now in the moment. Paul said this in Romans chapter 8. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Now today we're celebrating communion. And ultimately what communion is, is a reminder to us that Christ once suffered and died for all people. 
He suffered so that you and I would not have to suffer for all eternity. He said, I'll take on all the suffering so that even when you go through trials, even when you go through pain, even when you go through hurt, that is not the end. You will one day be reunited with people that you love. You'll be reunited with me. There will be this day of amazing party called heaven. And today, regardless of how far you've fallen away from him, his unconditional love and his grace reach out and say, I want you to come and be a part of me. Now, folks, even in a group this size this morning, there are some of you that are going through some trials. You know it. You can fake it. You can act like it's not there, but it's there. And even when you're going through trials, when you're in the midst of it, you have two choices. Either you can try to figure it out yourself, beat your head against the wall, get no sleep, or you can finally just surrender it all and say, God, this trial is too big for me. I give it to you. That's your choice. Either you figure it out or you surrender it to God. And he says, if you'll surrender it to me, I'm the God who cares. I'm the God who knows every single tear that you've ever cried. I know every hair that's on your head. I know the intimate details about everything in your life. I'm the one who knows when you're going through trials. So what we're going to do is spend a little bit of time confessing sin. And I pray that you surrender your trial today to Him. It may not go away tomorrow. It may not go away next week. It may not go away next month. But the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will come to your life when you surrender to Him. And when you go to any one of these tables here in just a second after you've spent some time, I just invite you to tear off a piece of it to dip it into the juice and to take and eat. God is for you. God is with you. He's at these tables. He wants you to surrender any trial in your life. So let's take a couple moments to confess anything that separates you from Him and to surrender your trial. And I'm going to lead us here in a prayer in just a second. We'll close with the song and you can come back. So let's just take a moment, confess any sin or surrender any trial to him. Father, thank you so much for being a loving God. Thank you that when we confess our sin, that you forgive us. That when we surrender our trials to you, that you give us peace. You walk with us in the midst of the trial. And today, God, some people need your wisdom. So the God who is generous, come now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Come to each person's life. Give them your wisdom. Give them your grace.
for redeeming us at the cross. We're just so thankful this morning for giving us joy. 
And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, you are dismissed. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. Remember the Soda Pop Sunday. Ben is right by the guest connections table. You should throw some Soda Pop money in there.